On the 23rd of December 1855, Charles Spurgeon began a sermon on verse 2 of this chapter with these words. Say, this is a season when, whether we wish it or not, we are compelled to think of the birth of Christ. He went on to say that he, he found it to be one of the greatest absurdities under heaven to think that there was any uh, religion in keeping Christmas Day. He said, you know, if Catholics want to hallow it, uh, they can do that. I don't see how consistent Protestants can do so. Uh, but he did go on to say he wished there were uh, at least 10 or 12 Christmas days in the year to give more rest to working people. Uh, he's talking there about 20 years or so before bank holidays were invented. Uh, he says that Christmas is a blessing as it enables us to, to gather around with, with our families and meet friends once more. And he finished his introduction to that sermon by saying, Although we do not fall exactly in the track of other people, I see no harm in thinking of the incarnation and birth of the Lord Jesus. And I agree with, with him on all of that. Uh, the only holy day under the New Testament is the Lord's Day. Uh, and not only are other holy days not commanded, uh, celebrating them as a church often takes away from uh, the one day we are commanded to celebrate. It's become increasingly common in recent years for churches to cancel all their services on the Sunday following Christmas. Uh, just just the, the last few years, but it seems to be becoming a trend. Uh, the reason for this, uh, we're, we're told, is that people are so exhausted after all the extra uh, services and church activities over Christmas that they just need a day at home with their families. And so the Sunday after Christmas, church is cancelled. But surely the, the answer to the, the problem uh, there is to cut out the extra activities and stick with what God has commanded. And I'm sure that next year when Christmas falls on a Sunday, we're going to see churches cancelling services on Christmas Day as well. That's happened the last couple of times. Christmas has, been, has fallen on a Sunday. Starbucks has been open and churches have been closed. But at the same time, if the birth of Jesus is in people's minds, if scripture passages are going to be read on TV and the radio, then it does give us an opportunity to think about some of these passages more deeply and to hopefully come to appreciate them more as we look at these familiar words in their original context. That's something we've only done done once or twice in the last six years but rather than start into a new series just before the holidays uh, that's one reason we're going to look at Micah 5 over these next couple of weeks is because it does contain in verse 2 a verse that will be on many people's minds uh, but this chapter also does tie in with our series on eldership one of the things I've tried to encourage us to do throughout our, our time thinking about eldership is to keep our focus on the good shepherd. And this passage contains a prophecy about the Lord Jesus in verse 4 where it says he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And it even contains in verses 5 and 6 prophecies of under shepherds in the gospel age. Uh, which we'll come back to next Lord's Day. But tonight we're going to look at the first three verses under two headings. And firstly, we see that Jesus' coming is good news for a church under pressure. 
Jesus coming is good news for a church under pressure. When Jesus came into this world, what sort of situation did he come into? Well, one word that we've already used to describe it this evening is the word darkness. Matthew, in his gospel, quotes from Isaiah chapter 9, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. When Jesus grew up, he would say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. So Jesus comes to a world that is in darkness. But what about the church? What word or phrase could be used to describe the church when Jesus came? Well, we see here in verse 1 that it's a church under siege. Micah here identifies himself with God's people in Judah and says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. He's speaking of a time when Jerusalem will be under siege. Commentators disagree as to exactly which siege this is a reference to. In Micah's day, under King Hezekiah, uh, Jerusalem did face a siege uh, by the Assyrians as as Sennacherib and his army encamped outside the walls and mocked God's people. So he could be talking about a siege that happened in his day, but more likely, uh, given the language in verse 3 about God giving the people up, he's uh, probably pointing forward to the fall of Jerusalem about a hundred years later. But either way, the point is that the Messiah's coming will be good news for a church whose backs are against the wall. And is that not a description of the church in our day? It feels like we're under siege. I know that some of the boys and girls like castles. Uh, They like reading about them, like drawing them. Uh, Maybe you could draw one tonight. We've got a book at home about a castle imagining what it would have been like long ago and in one of those pictures you have soldiers outside the castle trying to attack it Uh, so so that's boys and girls what a siege is when you're in a a city uh, with walls around it or when you're in a castle and there are people outside trying to get in that's a siege and for us as christians it feels a bit like we're in a castle And everyone around us is attacking us. It feels like they're chipping away at us uh, with bombardment after bombardment. And they keep bringing out new weapons which we're not even prepared for. The latest weapon that's being being brought into use is the attempt to ban so-called conversion therapy. Uh, The government in England and Wales are are consulting on this at at the moment. Other parts of the UK are racing to try and implement it. It puts Christian pastoral counselling on the same level as assault and rape. Of course, those last two things are already illegal, largely due to the influence of Christianity on our nation. And so it's Christianity itself which is very much the target Christians are under pressure. Christians in the workplace are under increasing pressure. In our 24-7 society, pressure on Christians to work on Sundays has been increasing for years. 
other Christians today are under pressure from the transgender lobby, whether to wear rainbow lanyards or use made-up pronouns. In fact, in every area of life, the heat is being turned up. The screw is being turned a couple of weeks ago, we prayed through some of the, the topics given by the Christian Institute for their week of prayer. Uh, those topics included marriage, family, society, schools, religious liberty. And in each of those areas, it feels like we're under siege. And with all that going on, it would be easy for us as Christians to develop a siege mentality. That rather than going out into all the world with the gospel, we can try and huddle down and bolt the doors and hold on to what we have. Just like the disciples did after Jesus' crucifixion before the Holy Spirit had been given. But even as we face up to the reality of our situation, even as as we do keep an eye on, on what's coming down the pipeline There are two big encouragements for us here in this chapter. There are two things which will help us live under siege, if that's what we're called to do, but without developing a siege mentality. And the first thing is that God is sovereign, even when we're under siege, because God is sovereign in our suffering. God is sovereign in our suffering. Now, literally, the the second line of of verse 3, or sorry, verse 1, says, He has laid siege against us. Uh, One of the reasons it's not translated in our Bibles is because it's not really clear who the he is referring to. Uh, Some Bible versions take it as referring to God, uh, whereas other Bible versions take it as referring to the enemy. Who has laid siege against them? Is it God or is it the enemy? But it may well be deliberately unclear. Who's laid siege against them? Well, it's both, isn't it? Because of God's people's sin, God has caused their human enemies to lay siege against them. That's sobering on one level to to think that at least some of the things the church in the UK is facing is because of our own sin. But it is also encouraging because it reminds us that God is sovereign when we're under siege. It reminds us that God is sovereign in our suffering. Yes, the fact that the church feels like it's under siege today is a reminder that we have an enemy. These laws and and so on are the work of the evil one. Uh, There's no doubt about that. But behind the devil's wicked hand is the sovereign hand of God. And that is true in every area of life. Behind the devil's wicked hand is the sovereign hand of God. The devil is like a dog on a lead and he can only go so far before God will pull the lead back. Yes, siege has been laid against it, against us. But it's not as if siege has been laid against us while God has been somewhere else. God is sovereign in our situation. He's sovereign even when we're under siege because he is sovereign in our suffering. That's true for us as churches and it's true for us as individuals. 
you might be in a situation tonight that you wouldn't have chosen in a million years. But God is sovereign in your suffering. What is your only comfort in life and death? Asks the Heidelberg Catechism. The answer goes that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. So the first encouragement for saints under siege is that even in this, God is sovereign. And not just in a fatalistic way of saying, well, God's sovereign, there's nothing we can do about it. But in the Christian sense that God is working together all these things for your good. And that if there had been a better way, God would have chosen it. If there had been a better way, God would have chosen it. So the first encouragement, God is sovereign in our suffering. The second encouragement is that it won't last forever. Because God is sovereign in our suffering, it means that one day he'll bring our suffering to an end. Now, verse 3 here contains bad news in the sense that the suffering of God's people isn't going to end anytime soon. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. There can be no doubt that the he in this verse is a reference to God. And it's saying that he will give them up to their enemies. The, the suffering of God's people won't come to a quick end. And we do need to know that so that we're not like those heading off to the First World War thinking that the whole thing would be over by Christmas. But we also do need to know that one day our suffering will be over. Because verse 3, it also contains the word until. Until. Just a, a tiny a little word, but, but it gives us hope that one day our suffering will be over. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. We'll come to who the, the she is in a minute. But even that word until tells us that the suffering of God's people isn't going to last forever. He shall give them up, but not forever. He shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. So God tells us here both that suffering will be a reality for us as churches and us as individuals, but he also tells us here that one day it will come to an end. John Calvin puts it like, it like this. It's as if Michael were saying, my friends, God is going to allow your enemies to afflict you and you will experience no relief during your sufferings. In fact, it will be as if God could not care less about you. But he's telling us in advance to prepare us for what's coming. If we're not prepared for suffering in the Christian life, 
if we don't have any concept that our belief in Jesus will bring us into conflict with those around us, or if we think that suffering will only be for a short while, then we'll be shocked when it comes in the first place, and we'll also be shocked when it, when it keeps coming and keeps coming. And you think, surely, surely it has to end soon, but it keeps going. And so we do need to know these two things, both that suffering will be a reality for God's people. At times it will seem as if God doesn't care less about us. Times when perhaps we'll even quote Psalm 22 as Jesus did on the cross. When we will say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We need to know that suffering will be a reality for God's people. But we do also need to know that it's coming to an end. Verse 3 goes on. Until she who is in labour has given birth. Who is the she? It's Mary. This is nothing less than a prediction of the birth of Jesus. We'll we'll come in verse 2 in a minute to to, to see that, that it names even the place of his birth. Now, the birth of, of Jesus didn't end the suffering that his people face. In a way, it made it more intense. But, but that intensity is only because that Satan knows that with the entrance of Jesus into the world, with, with the cross, with the resurrection, that his time is slipping away. The birth, death and resurrection of Jesus have ushered us into the last days. And in fact, already, it's as if the tables have turned There's a great battle towards the end of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Aslan, the lion who represents Christ, has been killed. And the evil forces go and attack against his people. Their enemies are winning. But then Aslan rises from the dead and comes and joins the battle. And things swing completely the other way. And even though the witch keeps fighting, she knows that she's doomed. And that's a picture of the days in which we are now living on this side of the cross. Verse 3 is a beautiful picture of Jesus' people returning from exile. The time of their suffering is over. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Just as the exiles would return home. So one day we will return to our true home which is heaven itself. And did you hear what what we are called in this verse? We're brothers. This mighty, majestic saviour, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. So Jesus coming is good news for a church under pressure because it means that the time of his people's suffering is nearly over. So firstly, tonight Jesus coming is good news for a church under pressure. But then secondly, we see that Jesus coming reminds us that God keeps his promises. Jesus coming reminds us that God keeps his promises. Bethlehem today is a tourist destination. It's a place that's sung about in Christmas carols. Even at a time of almost unbelievable biblical ignorance, there are still a good number of people who could tell you that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 
But for someone in 700 BC to prophesy that God's coming king would be born there would just have seemed so, so unlikely. The carol's not wrong when it says, O little town of Bethlehem. In the book of Joshua, chapter 15, there are more than a hundred cities in Judah listed. Bethlehem's not one of them. It's too small to even make the list of the top hundred cities in Judah. It was utterly insignificant. And so for verse 2 to say that a ruler in Israel was going to be born in Bethlehem would be like saying a future king of England was going to be born in Stoke. It just seems so unlikely. And in fact, not even just unlikely, it sounds a bit ominous. Where, where is Micah? Well, he, he's in Judah. Where, where does God's king reign from? In Micah's day, God's king reigns from the throne in Jerusalem. But if a future ruler is going to come from Bethlehem, well, that implies that something bad is going to happen to Jerusalem. When Micah is prophesying, Judah was still ruled by kings descended from David reigning in Jerusalem. But if Micah is talking about a future king coming from Bethlehem, that implies that the royal family who reigned from there were going to lose the throne in the future. It implies that this siege would would end in defeat for Jerusalem. Uh, some, some cities do survive sieges, my, my home city did, but, but it sounds like Jerusalem isn't going to survive it. In fact, the second half of verse 1 says, With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Uh, in one sense, uh, pointing forward to the Lord Jesus on the cross, but, but also implying uh, that Israel's king will be left defenseless. So the point is that if we're talking about a ruler coming from Bethlehem, the throne in Jerusalem in Micah's day is going to be empty in the future. So the mention of Bethlehem, it's unlikely and it's also disturbing. And yet Bethlehem had been the birthplace of a king once before. Boys and girls... You know where Jesus was born, don't you? You know that that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But do you know another king who was born in Bethlehem? King David. Israel's greatest human king was born in Bethlehem. And now a king is going to be born there who is both God and man. So the fact that this coming messianic king would be born in Bethlehem it tells us that God's great plan of salvation it's not going to be him starting from scratch yes God's people would would be chopped down uh, but not completely that's that's the image that Isaiah uses in chapter 11 Uh, Isaiah talks about a shoot coming forth from the stump of, of Jesse if you if you cut down a tree you're left with a stump uh But from that that stump, a shoot would come forth. Why? Why wasn't God going to completely start from scratch? Because God had made a promise that a descendant of David would sit on the throne forever. 
And even the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of God's people couldn't stop that. It's not a starting from scratch, but it is a going back to the beginning. And that's what the final part of the verse is primarily referring to. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now I think we're, we're absolutely right in one sense to take that as pointing back to eternity past. Telling us that this ruler would actually be God as well as man. Uh, I think we, we can't help but read it that way uh, when it's speaking of Jesus. But Micah's first reference it seems to be back to the ancient days of David. Back to God's promise that however dark things got in the future, God wouldn't forget his people. So yes, Bethlehem as birthplace of Jesus, it does tell us something about the, the humility of Jesus. But mainly it tells us about the certainty of God's promise. That no matter how bad things Yet God had made a promise to the family of David and that promise was going to be fulfilled. And when times did get dark, God's people remembered this promise that a ruler would once again come from Bethlehem. When Herod summons the chief priests and scribes and asks them where the Christ would be born, what do they tell him? In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Israel, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In chapter 7 of John's Gospel, we read that when the people heard Jesus speaking, some of them said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Do you see what they're saying? They're saying, this Jesus, he could be the Christ, but, but he's from Galilee. If only he'd been born in Bethlehem, then, then we'd know that he was the Christ. But of course they didn't realise that even though Jesus had been brought up in Galilee, he had been born in Bethlehem. In those dark, dark days, God's people remembered his promise. And in those dark, dark days, God kept his promise. And maybe that's just what you need reminded of this evening. That despite all the odds... Despite the dark, dark days you may be facing, God will keep his promises. By the time of Jesus' birth, God's people had lost so much. They lost their kings reigning from Jerusalem. They lost their freedom. They lost their political independence. But even though almost everything else had crumbled away... God's promise stood firm. And perhaps God will bring you to a point in your life when you have absolutely nothing left. Perhaps God will bring you to a point in your life where all that you once counted on is taken from you. And yet you'll find 
that his promise is still there. You'll find that when everything else is taken away, God's promise is still there. His promise that he will never leave you or forsake you. His promise that when you pass through the waters, he will be with you and through the rivers and they will not overwhelm you. His promise that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. That the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We're going to hear Bethlehem mentioned a lot over the next couple of weeks. And when you hear it, don't just think of a cute little manger scene. Think of the utter devastation of God's people. That they no longer had a king reigning in Jerusalem. Think of all that they once had that they'd lost by the time of the Roman occupation. But think of a God who was there for them even at their lowest point. Because people can take everything from us but they can't take God's promises from us. The name Bethlehem speaks of a, a chastened people. It speaks of a humbled people. It speaks of a distressed people. But a people who God had not forgotten. In January 1835, Andrew Jackson, the seventh US president, was approached by a would-be assassin who who fired a pistol at him or, or tried to fire one and it misfired. Jackson tried to hit him with his cane. Uh, the, the, the would-be assassin pulled out another gun and it also misfired. After, after all this, uh, both of those pistols were fired. They were both working. Uh, someone estimated that the odds of two consecutive misfires is one in 125,000. It looked like the end, but it wasn't. That's often the case in the kingdom of God. And sometimes it's a case in our spiritual lives as well. It looks like the end. But Micah's prophecy reminds us that God's Messiah would be born and God's kingdom would come. Not because the conditions look so good or because the outlook in the world looks so encouraging. But because God had promised and nothing and no one could overthrow that promise. And the good shepherd who's referred to in verse 4 will bring every one of his flock safely home. So the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. It wouldn't have warmed the hearts of those who first heard it because it would have signaled for them that dark days were ahead. But it would have given them something to cling on to. That one day those dark days would come to an end because God wouldn't forget his people. Amen. Well, in closing, we're going to sing about the the city of David, Uh, not the city of David in Bethlehem, but the city of David in Jerusalem. Uh, Both both cities known in the Bible as the city of David. And here as we sing about the city of the great king.
Psalm 48, page 96. Psalm 48, page 96. We'll sing verses 1 to 3 and then 8 to 10. Page 96, Psalm 48, 1 to 3 uh, and then 8 to 10. Even though Jerusalem was the city of God, even though it was the city of the great king, it would ultimately be destroyed. And so that, that reminds us, doesn't it, that when we sing about Jerusalem in the Bible, our hope is never in an earthly city uh, or what may or may not happen there. Our hope isn't geographically limited to any one place. We're, we're ultimately singing of the Church of Christ around the world. And uh, we can trust uh, God's promise that he will build his church. Uh, verse 10 because this God will be our God to all eternity. Yes, even he himself to death, our constant guide will be. What a, what a promise to hold on to. This God will be our God even unto eternity. Uh, so we'll sing to tune 152, tune 152, and it's verses 1 to 3, and then 8 to the end. We'll stand and sing praise. <laughs>